0: Hello, EB Online Church family, whether you're watching us from home or, again, you're on vacation, you're somewhere here on our campus, wherever you may be, we are so thankful that you have chosen to make us part of your day. And we hope that our time together encourages you and strengthens your walk with God. Now last week we asked, what do we do when we don't know what to do? It's what we call the now what question. Because every aspect of our lives has been impacted by the extraordinary rate of change brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Since everything from the way we shop, to the way we learn, to the way we interact with others, to the way we worship has so quickly changed, well, now what? I mean, what do we do? Change forces us to transition. And transitioning always causes loss. And that loss, the loss of normal routines and normal interactions, produces grief. We grieve over what we no longer have. And that grief expresses itself through anger and anxiety, through sadness, and and even through depression. We, along with our neighbors, are are grieving. So now what? What? How is a Christian to respond to the political and economic, technological, social, philosophical, and spiritual changes that are sweeping our society? To find direction and counsel, we are returning to some very well-worn pages here within our Bibles. We have sought out a reliable friend for advice on on what we should be doing now. So go ahead and open up your Bible. Go ahead and and turn and find your New Testament and, and find the book of Acts. It's just after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John, and it's actually the second half of Luke's Gospel story. And it basically details what happens when transformed lives take the message of Jesus and then are unleashed on the world. Luke's writing in Acts describes a people in transition, a people who are asking, well, now what? Now what do we do as believers in a living Jesus? Luke's history of these early believers covers about a 30-year time period over some 28 chapters. Now, Acts is a very dynamic and powerful and challenging portion of Scripture, and it's going to be our go-to for answering our now-what question. Last week, we focused on how Luke began and grounded his writing in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection was the event that changed everything for the disciples. So we discovered that if if Jesus is resurrected then His followers should act like it. It should be seen in the way that we treat others, the way we spend our money, schedule our time, and raise our family. It should be noticed by the words we speak and the tone in which we speak them. It should be evident in in how we face the future and, and live in the present. It should be acknowledged by where we center our priorities. Because a resurrected Jesus is God. Therefore, He gets all of me. And He becomes the filter through which I I view my career and my relationships, my marriage and my theology. Because if He is resurrected, then He lays claim to all of my life. If not, well then why bother? Now last week's journey back to the beginning of Christianity left us to wrestle with a very challenging question. Do I live differently because Jesus lives eternally? And I hope that as you thought about the implications of your answer, well, I hope you began to realize that this isn't going to be just some quick and easy trip into the pages of Scripture and in search of proofs to defend why we worship or organize ourselves the way that we do. I know that's kind of how some have come to these chapters and approached them before. A manual for how to do church right. I don't think this was Luke's intent when when he was putting ink to parchment. He wasn't recording a how-to manual. He was recording what happens when people who ask that now what question are empowered by God's Spirit and commit themselves to declaring God's grace. Acts tells us what Jesus' people did. And in doing so, turns the mirror on us as if to say, well, now what? Now what are you going to do in the name of the living Jesus? So let's jump back into the text, looking at verses 4 and 5 here in in chapter 1. Now, remember, the disciples had the privilege for 40 days to experience, see, and and touch the truth that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. And then on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what stands out to me here. Here we have men who have witnessed with absolute certainty the resurrection of Jesus, but they are not yet ready to be let loose on the world. There is still something lacking. There is still one thing that is missing in their life. Now, Jewish prophets had spoken about a day of enormous expectation. A day when God would pour out His Spirit on all of mankind. When God would not just be above them or around them, but God would be in them. And He would not differentiate God's Spirit would make no distinctions. Male, female, rich, poor, Sabbath keeper, and meat eater, all would be touched. Everybody. The promise of God to come and direct and empower their life was for all humanity and would stretch until the end of time. You see, I believe that we must recapture the conviction that was so central to the people of God throughout the ages. The conviction that God is present and is active in this world. The conviction that the controlling forces of this world are are not mechanical or technological, but spiritual. So I start with a simple question. Do you believe that? You see, in Western society, we've become so enamored by and dependent upon human ingenuity and innovation that we might have come to the conclusion that we just don't need God anymore. We've got everything we need on our laptops, on our cell phones. We have everything we need in our management skills and our elite philosophies. We just don't need God. And the danger for us as believers is that we become so focused on the physical, so focused on what we can attempt and achieve that we forget the most fundamental truth about this world. Ultimately, after all is said and done, the real empowerment of life is spiritual. The disciples who had witnessed the resurrected Jesus and spent multiple days being instructed and coached by Him were nevertheless unprepared for their mission until they were empowered by the Spirit. Now think about that. Now, now we're going to talk more about the, the, in the future what empowering looks like. and I don't want this idea to intimidate or to scare you, but if I could give you just in brief terms what it means to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in your life, it would be this. The acknowledgement that the Spirit of God dwells in you is the acknowledgement that you by yourself can do nothing. It's an echoing of Jesus in John chapter 15, when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, you can survive in this world and you can make a decent living in this world and, and you can raise a family and you can have a lot of fun. But in terms of the spiritual dynamics of your life, in terms of empowering your life to make a difference, in terms of being salt and light in this world, you, without the Spirit of God in your life, can do nothing. And we've experienced this before. We fail to pray. We fail to be still. We fail to seek God's counsel. And then then we wonder why we're so fatigued and and guilt-ridden and depressed and frustrated. We try to achieve God-honoring results with human-centric strategies. It doesn't matter the amount of podcasts you listen to or the amount of books that you read. It's not about the catchy slogan that you have or your life goal or or any good ministry idea. If you don't begin and end with God, then you will fail. And I know you would think that this dependence on the Spirit would be the lifeblood of our Christian communities, yet that has not been the experience for many. Theologian Francis Schaeffer once posed the question, how many how many of our churches and ministries would even notice and would carry on exactly in the same manner as usual, even though every reference to the Holy Spirit and to prayer suddenly disappeared from the pages of the New Testament? He's saying, what if there was no Spirit? What if there was no prayer? Would it matter? You know, we're going to discover that this idea of God's Spirit empowering believers flows throughout the writings and Acts. In fact, spirit language was embedded in the conversations of the early church. Paul would command first and second generation followers of Jesus to be filled with the Spirit. He would caution them not to quench the Spirit. He would encourage them to keep in step with the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit. This was the common language of first century Christians. Why is it not the common language of 21st century Christians? What would change in your life if there was no Holy Spirit? In terms of how you were living every day, would it make any difference at all? Or is the Holy Spirit just some kind of paperweight that God gave you for showing up and donating to the cause of Christianity? I mean, it's over there in the corner there with your Bible, but it doesn't really do anything. What I'm asking, I guess, is do we as people still depend on God? Or is our technology, our education, our ingenuity, our creativity... Just make God obsolete. Are you willing to allow the Spirit of God to work in your life? Now, the reason I ask this is because I believe that the people of God cannot accomplish the mission of God without the Spirit of God. Now, let me put it another way. I think God's people must embrace God's Spirit to accomplish God's mission. Now, let's unpack this a little bit more. You continue reading in Scripture, verses 6, 7, and 8, it says that they gathered around him and they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now back in verse 3, Jesus spoke with his disciples about the kingdom of God. That time when the ways of heaven would become the ways of earth. When God's rule displayed through the loving acts of Jesus would invade hearts and minds. The movements of God would, would take over the whole world, starting with the individual heart. And it's almost with a sense of disappointment that the disciples failed to understand. The Jews had always thought, and I think were preconditioned to think, nationalistically. Talks of kings and kingdoms meant that the times and ways of David would be restored and that their enemies would be brought to heal. Israel would once again be this great nation that others would respect and fear. They were looking for a political and territorial and racial kingdom. And if it didn't happen before the resurrection... Well, surely it was going to happen now. Jesus is finally going to go into Jerusalem, a triumphant king, assume the throne, and his followers would ride smiling on his coattails. The idea of a life lived under the total control of God as demonstrated by the life of Jesus, growing then in the heart of a believer like a mustard seed, is, is not what the average Jew had in mind when the conversation turned to kingdom. And so Jesus slowly and gently rebukes them, and he says to them, it's not for you to know the times and dates that the Father is set by his own authority. And by the way, how many times have you heard people trying to determine when and where Jesus is going to come again? You need to understand this is not the task of the Christian. Instead, in answer to their now what question, Jesus shifts the attention away from speculation and says, now here is what you should be thinking about. And he says, you're going to receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And this moment reflects, I think, something that is common in all four of the Gospels. We oftentimes refer to it as the Great Commission. All four Gospel writers take the time to describe a moment when Jesus, between his resurrection and his ascension, would sit down and share some final words. And the last words that each writer highlights all have the same focus. Followers of Jesus have a story to share. Jesus tells the disciples that their task was was not to worry about how or when. Their task was to be spirit-filled witnesses for God. Now look, I understand that, that we have not been literal eyewitnesses of Jesus. But we are the ones whom Jesus told Thomas would be blessed. Those who have not seen... And yet have believed, and that belief is as concrete as the the chair or the couch that you're sitting in today. And this is where the importance of the Spirit, I think, begins to take hold. Just like the disciples, it is not enough just to have a, a certain knowledge or belief about Jesus. They were ready when and only when they were indwelled and empowered by God Himself. They could not accomplish the mission of God without the Spirit of God. So look. Our lives bear witness to the change that is possible when broken, sinful, selfish individuals are transformed by the Spirit of God. You are a walking testimony to the Spirit's power, and you have a story to tell. Now understand, God will not coerce your testimony, but He will empower you to testify. So what have you seen and heard in your own personal life? What has God done for you? How has the resurrection of Jesus impacted you? How has God given new life to you? If Jesus is so close to your heart that He transcends your thinking, if what you have experienced as a believer is so meaningful to you that it motivates your waking moments and plans out every step of your life, if you live as if there is an overarching compass that deliberately directs your life, then you must say something. You cannot merely just, just show up. So now what? Every believer in Jesus as the risen living Christ should desire to get to the point where we are like Peter and John, who when told, now look, you, you guys, you stop talking about this Jesus. They say we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. There will come a moment There will come a moment today, tomorrow, this week, I don't know, sometime in the midst of all this change and uncertainty, when you will be afforded the tremendous privilege of being a witness for Jesus. You'll have the opportunity to brag on God, to share how you live differently, because Jesus lives eternally. You'll be able to point someone else to the one who does not change. Allow God's Spirit then to empower you with the courage and conviction to speak out. There is a world around us that needs to hear from a Jesus follower. And there is someone within your sphere of influence that needs to hear from you. So if you believe in God, say so. If you believe Jesus to be the answer for the pain and the sin of this world, tell someone. If God's Spirit has changed your life, redeeming you from a destructive past and a hopeless future, then shout it out. The Spirit is a promise to us that we will not be abandoned. We are not left alone fumbling through the dark trying to figure out what to do next. The grief that we feel over the temporary things that we have lost should not be stronger than the joy we experience over our permanent relationship with God. We are Spirit empowered, God worshiping, followers of Jesus. So let's act like it. Don't waste your witness or temper your testimony. You have a mission and a message. God is present and active, redeeming this world. And he is acting you, asking you, just like those first disciples, to be a spirit-filled witness to his work. So tell me, what have you seen and heard? Better yet, why don't you go tell someone else? Go tell someone else what God has done for you. Can I get a witness?